Well, uh, we are continuing Galatians. Um, uh, we have a couple messages left in Galatians, and uh, and so uh, then we're going to go into a series called Gospel in Life, and uh, so you've heard us talk about that. We'll talk about that more later. Um, but it's going to be an incredible, incredible time just trying to figure out what does it look like to actually get the gospel from our head to our heart. Um, and so this morning, though, we're going to be in Galatians 6. Um, and kind of to intro our, our time in Galatians 6, I want to talk about something. Um, some of you have heard me talk about uh, my experience running a, a marathon. Uh, in 2009, I ran a Chicago Marathon. I think uh, this is a picture of... Uh, can't really see it. Um, myself and two other guys that ran in the marathon, Kyle and Jason. And uh, it was absolutely one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, which is why it was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Uh, if you know anyone that's completed anything incredibly difficult, they have much to say about what it was like to endure that, and it becomes a very memorable piece. You weren't supposed to go to that one yet. Uh, that becomes a very memorable piece in their minds. Okay, um, so for example, uh, there's so many parallels. If, you, if you're a runner, you, you get this. There's so many parallels to running in the Christian life. Um, the training aspect of, of training for this marathon uh, was, was tough. Um, there were times uh, when I just wanted to quit. There were times I didn't know if I could continue. Now, most of the training I did, I did with my buddy Jason. Many of you, I think, know him. Um, most of the training I did, we, we did it together. And so there were times when I was done. I wanted to quit. I wanted to give up. Um, one run, we ran in Alton. Car got broken into. Both of our phones were stolen. Both of our wallets were stolen. And we got, you know, that's a terrible thing to come back from an 18-mile run to. Um, it's hard. It's incredibly hard. The times when I wanted to quit, it's amazing the number of times Jason was just like, no, we're doing this. Let's go. We're running this. The times when he wanted to quit or the times when, when I was like, no, this is what's going to happen. This, we we got to push through this. Um, the race was unbelievable for a couple reasons. Um, if you've ever experienced, I know there's several runners here, um, some of, several of you run, if you've experienced this type of, of atmosphere. It's, it's amazing. But what I, what I can't get my mind around, or, or one of the most amazing things about the experience was, was the crowd. Um, there, I've never experienced more people that I didn't know that were more for me than I ever realized. Um, th- there's a picture you saw of all of our wives that were there. And Danielle joked with me afterwards. She's like, I think I ran a marathon trying to keep up with you running your marathon. I mean, she mapped out the course about how she could see us at what points, and she knew my time, so she estimated, like, oh, he should be here by this time, and she, they were, like, jumping on, like, a, a, this car that would take you to different places, and, um, and I saw her probably four different times during the race. Um, and this next picture is a picture of, at the turn, 13.1 miles it was the first time I think I saw her. I missed her the first time. You, you can't really see her. She's kind of off there in the right. 
And I knew when I saw her, I was going to run up and I was going to kiss her. I was like, I know it's probably going to take away from my time, but it's all right, it's all right. I'm, I'm still going to do it. And so I ran up and I gave her a big kiss and, and I continued going. But I can't tell you how awesome it was to see her face and just the excitement that she had for me. This was actually, and she's, she gives me a hard time about this, but I never was interested in running until she was the one who got me interested in it. And I never in my life wanted to mar- run a marathon until she was like, I want to run a marathon. It's my life goal. Will you do it with me? Now, she didn't end up running this one with me, and I actually ran a marathon before she did. So she was probably more excited about me running this marathon than I was. Um, not only was the crowd amazing, you know, I had my name on my race bib. People were yelling out my name. Um, the people that were running, being with them was, was incredible. Because here's why. Every single one of us had one goal. And it wasn't questionable what the goal was. Every single person that was in the street, ready to run, with a bib on, had one goal, and it was what? To cross the finish line. I didn't have to look at the person next to him and say, hey, what's your goal? Oh, you want to bail out at the Johnny on the spot at mile two and just quit there, huh? Oh, okay, that's pretty cool. Let's see what this guy... No, I knew their goal. I knew what they were shooting for. And not only that, throughout the course, I saw specific times where people were helping each other continue. Someone would fall, they'd help them up and get them going. I watched that. The, the last six miles were the most, ex- six of the most excruciating miles of my life. And specifically the last couple of miles, I remember vividly these two ladies running. And the one girl was like almost crying. And I almost said, hey, I've... I almost joined her because I was almost crying. And then this other girl was like, it was like, no big deal. Like, I had done this a million times. And she was totally like, just talking to this other girl the whole time. And I'm like, you're at mile 24 and you're talking? Like, come on. Okay, and so, just pushing her. Come on, you got this. Keep your focus. Keep your form good. Don't bend over. Keep, and just pushing her, seeing her to the finish. And it was powerful for me to see that. There was even a, uh, a couple, I saw one guy who was blind running it. And he had these guides that were running beside him the whole way. It was, it was crazy. But one of, the, one of the things I love about that imagery is it's the imagery that Paul, or it's the imagery that the writer of Hebrews, whoever that may be, uh, says in Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which, so, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's what we were doing. We knew the race. We'd looked at the map. We'd seen where the turns were. We knew where the bathroom stops were. We knew where the water stations were. We knew where the gel stations were. We knew where the banana stations were. We knew where there was going to be a hill. We knew where there was going to be a downhill. We, kn- we knew our race. We knew the course. We knew the obstacles that were going to come. We also knew the things that were going to help us overcome those obstacles. The writer of Hebrews says, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. So we're here right now, and, and let me fill you in on this, and you probably know this, but we tend to forget this. You know the race. We want to act like we, we're not sure of it. 
God, what, what is your will? Am, am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to take this job? Am I supposed to make this decision? Am I supposed to finish school? Am I supposed to get married to this person? Are we supposed to have two kids or eight kids? Like, God, like just trying to, like, but it, let me just narrow it down to you and, t- and remind you, because I know you know this. You know the race. It's running to Jesus. It's it. Running to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. So our race in that marathon was to f- cross the finish line. Now, there were going to be obstacles. We knew that. There were going to be things to help us overcome those obstacles. We knew that. I didn't know how my body was going to respond. There was a point, probably about mile 18, where my knees started locking up, and I began, to, I began to freak out a little bit because I hadn't experienced that at all in my training. But because tra- I trained so well, my body responded well. Okay? I knew those things. We know our race. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, we're in Galatians. And for the past however long, we've been talking very intensely about the reality that Paul says we're saved not by works, but by faith alone. And interwoven throughout this whole letter is, is a picture of, of community. And it really comes to a head here in these last couple of weeks, but specifically this week. The reality of, of here, here's, here's the big picture. Living as a justified, spirit-filled believer happens in community. Okay, so the fact that last week I talked about the difference between living for yourself Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, envy, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, anger, idolatry, versus living in the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The the battle between those two kingdoms that wage war within us, we talked about those. And the truth of the matter is, is that the means to actually walking out, what God's called us to walk out, is in community. Now, before you pat yourself on the back and begin to feel like, we do this pretty well. Okay, well, we're a church that we do community, we do living life together pretty well. But what I want to do is, I just want us to ask the Lord Lord, show us in this passage what it looks like and allow the Scriptures to be a guide to say, okay, here's what it's supposed to look like. What areas of our community as a church look this way and what areas don't? So I'm going to give you a handful of things. I have seven. I don't know if we'll get to all of them. But uh, several rules of engagement is what I want to call them. Uh, Let's look at the text. Let's start at Galatians 6, verse 1. Actually, I want to start at 525. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each, one, each will have to bear his own load. Here's the overarching message of all five of those verses. It's this. Destroying sin is a community project. Destroying sin is a community project. We've been talking the last couple of weeks about the Christian condition. The idea that, that we're broken because of sin. The reality of the cross shows us that we're absolutely set free. We're absolutely free and we absolutely have victory over sin. Yet, the brokenness within us creates a war within us. The war is that while you're absolutely free and set free from sin, at the same time, sin is a threat to you and you have to fight it and you have to defeat it. And the context for that battle we see all throughout the scriptures, but explicitly here in Galatians 6 is community. Now, look at the passage. It says, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him. So it's interesting because in looking at it, it's almost like you walk in on somebody or you, you, you see someone and they're like, oh, you caught me. But that's really not what it's talking about. It's talking more about passive sin. Not so much a divisive, I know I'm, I'm walking in sin and I, I'm not, I don't care about it. It's, it's more a, a, a passive unaware, deceived by the enemy into thinking that you're walking with the Lord and you don't realize that you're walking in sin. And it's the role of those around you that come alongside you and grab you and bring that to light and show you that. Now, we have to be careful here because the next part makes us think there's an elite class of Christians. Okay, take a look. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Okay, let's talk about the word spiritual for a second. You who are spiritual. Okay, this isn't like the super Christian. Um, This isn't like, oh, the pastor's got to be spiritual, right? You know what this word's talking about? The Spirit of God is alive and well within you. That's it. I don't care if you're 10. I don't care if you're 80. I don't care if you sweep the streets for a living or if you teach doctors. Spiritual means the Spirit of God is alive in you and at work in you. Okay, so I'll go back to last week. If you remember last week, we have two kingdoms that are waging war. All of the fruits of self in 19 through 21, I think it is, and then all of the fruits of the Spirit, 22 and 23 of chapter 5. Okay, so what does it mean to be spiritual? Does it mean that the fruits of self do not exist at all? Not necessarily. 
Okay, but what it does mean is that your life exhibits love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And that the fruit of self, you're waging war, the, the Spirit of God is waging war against that. Okay, so repentance becomes a very key element in that reality. Okay? The Spirit of God is alive and well within you. That's what it means to be spiritual. So you, who are spiritual, go and confront. Okay? Why, why is being spiritual such a key element? Because otherwise you're a hypocrite, right? You walk up to somebody and, I'm really concerned about your life. You're walking in sin, da 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 and they're like, okay, you might be right, but have you looked in the mirror lately? Okay, now, here's the truth of the matter, though. The spiritual person, and we'll get into this here in a second, knows their condition. It's why, it's why the passage goes on to talk about gentleness. Okay, they, they know their, their wickedness. They know their depravity. They know they're not perfect. And that affects how... how the rebuke happens. We'll get into that here in a second. The next rule of engagement is this. Restoration is always the goal of rebuke. It says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of, of gentleness. Let's talk about restoration for a second. This word restore is the idea of, of putting something in order, to restore it back to its former condition. Here's the word picture. It's like your bone is fractured, or dislocated, and to restore is to set it back into place. That's the picture. Okay? The goal of restoration is never punitive, as in punishment, condemnation, but in I want to restore you back to how God designed you to function. Let me give you an example. Uh, if you've been a part of any restoration projects, there's various kinds. Maybe it's um, furniture. Maybe it's cars. Uh, for the past several months, I've been helping my dad rehab a house. And it's been quite a project. And let me show you the kitchen. Uh, we absolutely gutted the kitchen. You're like, that's a kitchen? Yeah. It's the kitchen window right there. The counter used to be there. Um, you can see some pipes. That's um, the kitchen. We absolutely ripped it all out. It was awesome. Whew, sorry. It was great. Um, yeah. There was, a, there was a, bo- a header board at the top above the cabinet. Some of you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Just go with it. Um, and I got to rip that thing out. It was like all this pretty drywall that I got to just take a hammer to and rip out, and it was great. Um, but here's the thing. I had no clue what I was getting into. Okay? We started ripping this stuff out. You have no clue what's behind the walls. You have no clue what's behind what's in that header board. There was wires everywhere and insulation and stuff falling down, and we had to, because we wanted to add cabinets that went to the ceiling... And so we had to clean all that up. And so we, when we started this project and we got into this mess, and then there's like stuff that like we didn't even have a clue how to fix. And so we had to like get on the phone and, hey, can you come look at this? And we're, we're going through all this procedure. And there was a point when I looked at my dad and I'm like, Dad, 
do you ever feel like, why in the world did, did you do this? Like, what were you thinking? And he's like, yeah, all the time. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. Here's the finished product. If, if this house was in North County, I would buy it. If I had money to buy it. <laughs> it's awesome. I love it. I even helped hang those cabinets. Now, here's, here's the thing. It's beautiful, isn't it? The restoration process is ugly. It stinks. It's hard work. Some of you have been hanging out at the Maxidens this week, helping do some restoration work while they were out of town. It's hard work. Was it not? Love to be able to bless them because we love them so much. Hard work. The finished product is awesome. I don't think, you guys haven't seen it yet, have you? It's awesome. It's great. Here's, here's the deal. You begin to get into the truth of living in obedience to go to another and say, Here, here's the situation that I see. And lovingly seek to bring restoration to them. It's messy. You begin to get into situations where you're like, I I don't really know what to do. And I think what we tend to do is we tend to see those from afar, even before we get there. And so we're like, I know I'm not really going to know what to do there, so I'm not even going to approach it. Because it's going to get me in situations where I don't really know how to handle it. As opposed to saying, yeah, I know there's going to be situations that I don't know how to handle. But that's okay. Because the Spirit of God is alive within me, and this is what He's called me to. So I'm going to walk in obedience, knowing that it's going to be messy. Knowing that it's going to be hard, but knowing that when the restoration process is complete, there's beauty that comes out of it. Now, the passage goes on to talk about gentleness. And the reason why gentleness is so crucial and so important is, is because of the difficulty of it. Because in, in the midst of it, what can happen is if you're not demonstrating gentleness, it's such an incredible breeding ground for the enemy. And we'll talk about him in a second. But gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit, is it not? So, so when you're seeking to fight the kingdom of self and, and bring breakthrough in the kingdom of God into your life and into your community, into the life of another believer, the, as the fruit of the Spirit are, are demonstrated in and through your life, and gentleness comes, what happens? Revel, uh, Romans 2.4 It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And so, 
this becomes the very reason and the very means to how you confront sin as opposed to sin being this standoffish, I don't like the way you're doing that because of how it affects me. And so you begin to confront sin out of jealousy and out of anger, out of enmity, rather than gentleness and love and patience. Restoration is always the goal of rebuke. Now, here's the deal. The enemy absolutely hates it. The enemy absolutely hates restoration. Look at the next part of the verse. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So here's what it's saying. Walking through this process is very, very dangerous because the enemy wants to take you out as the spiritual one. Let me, let me explain. So you go to somebody and you begin to gently and lovingly confront them. The enemy wants to put in your head, you're good. You're in the right place. You have it all together. And in the process of you walking out God's redemptive strategy, within the context of a community, the enemy wants to destroy you, the spiritual one, through the process of bringing restoration to the unspiritual one, I'll call it. And that's why, that's why Paul's like, keep watch on yourself. Be careful. That's why Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So the second you think you have it all together and you go and you confront someone as if you have it all together and you think that you're beyond that sin, whatever it may be, but the truth of the matter is is that the reason why Paul says keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted is because you're not beyond that sin any more than that person was. So you go to confront them isn't like this, I can't believe you're doing this. But it's, I get the reality of the craftiness of the enemy to deceive. And I'm lovingly coming beside you. Not because I have it all together and I know how to do this and you don't and you just need to watch me. But because of the fact that the Spirit of God is alive and calling me to do this, and because of the fact I'm just as susceptible to this as you are. That's the truth. The enemy wants to take us out in that. Look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Here's the fourth thing. Christian communities bear burdens because they are image bearers. It tells us, bear one another's burdens. Do you know why we're called to bear one another's burdens? And out of, out of a natural reality of who we are, we should bear one another's burdens is because we bear the image of God. 
The, the nature of God is 1 Peter 5, 7 that says, cast all your anxieties on me, for I care for you. I bear your burden so much so that I bore your sin on the cross. We're image bearers. So what, what do we do? We, we bear burdens. This idea of a burden bearing, um, it carries the idea of, of something incredibly heavy that you carry for a long time. Not just like a quick, let me help you with that for a sec, but like you carry this for a long time. And I think it directly speaks to unbelief. Let me explain why I say that. The reality of sin, simply put, is this. It's a failure to trust God. That's it. When you walk in sin, you're failing to trust God. Bearing burdens... Is the same thing. And when a burden exists, ultimately what that burden is, is you not trusting God. When you have stress in your life, I don't care how crazy your job is, what you're saying is, I don't trust God. That's what a burden is. If you trusted God, would you have that burden? It's a matter of unbelief. And so there's not a difference between bearing the burden of jealousy, anger, sexual immorality, bearing the burden of raising your kids, bearing the burden of obedience in evangelism, in engaging your unsaved coworker, your unsaved neighbor. All of the disobedience in those stem from unbelief. And so the call is to come alongside a believer and strengthen their faith. Call them to belief. Be faith for them. One commentator put it like this. When the burdens of life become simply unbearable for any member of the community, the others, if they are truly spiritual, will lighten his load by sharing his burdens and thus enabling him to stand. Let me give you two reasons, two ways that I think that burdens, why they aren't carried. Um, One would be a refusal to bear burdens because you think you're too good to do so. So here's the way this one would, would, this would kind of be a legalistic um, don't get me dirty type of mentality to where it's like, I want to confront sin. I want to I show you that you're not obeying Jesus. And then I want to kind of stand back here and, and expect you to deal with it. But don't come near me because you're dirty. You're gross. Okay? Uh, it's as if I'm too good to really carry your burden with what you're experiencing. Which is interesting, because uh, last time I checked, Jesus bore the sins of the world on the cross, and he was perfect. He lived his life with messy people. He loves us. The second failure would be a refusal to let other people carry your burdens because you feel like it's a sign of your weakness. 
and you're needy. Well, let me lovingly tell you this. If you come across like you have it all together and you come across like you're in a good place and you come across like you're not needy and you're not weak, let me just tell you, you're wrong. Because every single one of us is broken and every single one of us is weak and every single one of us is needy. Extremely needy. And you need people to carry your burden. And the defeat in your life is a direct result of the fact that you're too prideful to go to someone and say, will you help me? I can't do it. Because this is the means that God has for us to actually walk in obedience. That's what it says when it's like, and, those, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Live in community in such a way like this that you can actually do what he says. Imagine that. You actually can do what he says. Look at verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. It's it's the opposite goal of verse 2. If you think you are something when you are nothing... So, so what is it saying? The, the reality of your, your gentleness and humility in carrying one another's burdens, namely calling out sin in another's life, it comes from the understanding of your own neediness. It comes from the understanding of your own wretchedness, of your own wickedness, apart from the work of Christ. So there's no, there's no room for pride when you understand the weight of the fall of man. When you understand the nature of depravity, can you, can you lift your head and walk boastfully before anyone? Even the most wretched of wicked of sinners? Do I have any more ground to boast than Adolf Hitler? Except in the cross of Christ Jesus. That's it. is why we have to understand the gospel. And this is why understanding the Spirit's work in us to create love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, to to bring that out in our lives gives us the call to personally invest in people's restoration. In all of our, we're all being restored. Are we not? A personal investment. As opposed to a standoffish, you just need to get this together. And when you're not, I'm going to let you know about it. There's no personal investment in the restoration process. Why is personal investment so important? Here's why it's so important. Because the person that's walking in sin, they lack the wisdom to know how to get out of it. Or they would have done that already. Correct? Yeah. That's why personal investment is is huge. Somebody come alongside another and saying, I want to help you in this. I want to help carry this burden with you and invest in it. Not be a standoffish, you need to fix this. Look at four. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. 
for each one will have to bear his own load. This is a really interesting shift that I want to end with. Um, Let me encourage you with this. Don't let community become a crutch. Let me explain. The goal of Christian community is a catalyst to your, it'd be a catalyst to your faith. Okay? Because notice what the passage just said. Let each one test his own work, then his reason to boast will be in himself and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. So at the end of the day, you're going to give an account for your life. Well, you might bear the burden of the person next to you, you're not going to give an account for the life of the person next to you. You're going to give an account for you. So, so what does that mean? It means that community, the context in which we're called to live the Christian life, is a catalyst to knowing and loving Jesus personally, and corporately and a catalyst to engaging a lost and dying world. So, how are you doing? How are we doing? Does this bear weight on our understanding of what it means to live spirit-filled lives in community? Because this, this is God's design. And it's absolutely beautiful. I cannot imagine seeking to live out what he's called me to live alone. And actually, I tried it for years. And I never understood why I couldn't figure it out. And I failed, and I failed, and I failed, and I failed, and I failed. And so I ask you this. Do you have people in your life that you're not just relying upon to bank your spirituality on how they're doing, but that you're allowing to engage you in such a way that you're actually beginning to walk with the Lord and know the Lord and spend time with the Lord and live an obedient life as He's called us to. That we don't just love one another for the sake of loving one another, but that we love one another for the sake of our our knowing Jesus more fully and walking in obedience to Him more fully. There's a big difference. And I don't want to be the church that just loves each other really well and feeds each other really well and has fun together, void of any sense of God's pushing us to walk in greater obedience to Him. This is what God's calling us to. Let me pray. Father, you are holy and you are perfect. And you reign in heaven. And you are the God who opens our hearts to see not only the weight of who you are, but the reality of our own brokenness, the reality of our own need to repent. And God, most of the time, we're not even capable of, of seeing our own need. And I thank you for giving us people to stand beside us to show us our need and to call us to greater discipleship. God, I don't want to be a cool, trendy community. We love one another church. 
want to be a church that loves each other in such a way that it catalyzes our love for you and our love for a lost and dying world. So God, break us where we need to be broken. And God, teach us through your spirit how this works. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In your powerful name, I pray, amen.